Rippy Writes with Brian Scott Rippy. Transcript can be obtained by drinking a fifth of bourbon, ramming your head through some drywall, and then writing down every thought you have. What's up on a Thursday? I'm Brian Scott Rippy. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of the Rippy Writes podcast. Today we have Chase Parham, fresh back from the parade. We recorded uh, somewhat late Wednesday night uh, after Ole Miss's celebration parade. He gave some color to uh, what happened there. Uh, for those of you that maybe did not attend or maybe you attended and want to hear a recap. And uh, we hadn't chatted since the national title run, or at least not on air, uh, since the national title uh, happened itself. So talked to Chase for about an hour about lots of different baseball stuff, what the uh, celebration was indicative of, uh, Mike Bianco's legacy, and a whole lot more. And three outs, of course. But anyway, it's going to be an awesome show. Before we get to that, though, I want to remind you, podcast is brought to you by Skybox Sports Picks. Who is Skybox Sports Fix? Well, glad you asked. They're the world's best gaming handicapping website, the inventors of the Skybox Matrix Interval, and advanced modeling mechanism that has helped propel Skybox to the top of the sports handicapping industry. You need to check these guys out. Skybox, they love Ole Miss. Right now they're running a promo code that you get 50% off any picks package purchase until the first football game, the first college football game kicks off. Use the promo code NATTY, I want to say. Did I get that right? I'd be the one to give the guys the wrong promo code. Let me double check this. We're doing this in real time. Let's see. Yeah, promo code Natty, N-A-T-T-Y. If you needed help spelling that, well, I've got more questions for you later. Anyway, 50% off any picks package that fits your price range. Look, Skybox is the professionals. They're the best handicapping service on earth. If you're into wagering, you need to use Skybox. You're, uh, they're the only way to consistently profit. They're going to help you do that way more consistently than your, uh, than your own dumb brain. And you don't want the bookie calling you on Sunday night, Monday morning, text you, ask you to square up. You want to be texting him, asking where your supplementary income is coming from. Skybox is going to help you do that. You pick a picks package, whether it's month long, season long, all sports. You can try it for a week. You can try it for a day. I recommend just going all sports, riding with Skybox for a year. They're going to make you a ton of money and then some, and it's going to feel great doing it. So check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Ran into the Skybox guys over the weekend. And uh, great to see them uh, happy they're a part of this uh, podcast family. Very, very fortunate to have great sponsors like Skybox. Um, so check them out, skyboxsportspicks.com. Any, take advantage of this natty code. Any, any picks package, anyone, 50% off. That's half off going forward to the first football game. Skybox says go Rebels, national champions, and they want you to profit uh, off of it as well. Check them out. Podcast is also brought to you by LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. Go see Greg, another terrific sponsor of mine. Absolutely love Greg and the LB's, the guys at LB's over there. You need to check them out. It's the, absolutely the best place in the world to get meat. Um, and Oxford is so lucky to have it. Right now, if you're a Rippy Wright subscriber, that's rippywrights.substack.com. You're going to get a newsletter from me early Tuesday morning as I'm starting the writing process now. Um, and you also get discounted meats. It's a six right now. It's a sixteen ounce prime strip for twenty bucks and a five dollar pack of sausage. All you got to do is type in your email, and boom, show and proof of subscription, and Greg will get you set up. Then go find your own favorites. Whether it's all kinds of the different cuts, I love the tri tip. The fillet burgers are delicious. They have great sides, fresh seafood, crab stuffed mushrooms are always a winner. Incredible sausages, all kinds of great stuff at LB's. He wants to make your grilling experience great. Fourth of July is coming up. Maybe you're just going to grill outside for a week to celebrate Ole Miss's national championship. Greg wants to make your grilling experience great. If he doesn't have it, something he wants to, he will get it for you or do everything he can to get it for you. You need to go there, but just a crown jewel of Oxford. Check them out there, LB's University Avenue there in Oxford. 
And finally, the podcast is brought to you by MIMS Insurance, a new sponsor to the show. Very excited about MIMS Insurance. They're a good luck charm. Ole Miss, I think, has lost a grand total of one baseball game since the fine folks at MIMS Insurance hopped on. Matt MIMS is an independent insurance agent in Oxford, and his sole goal is to make sure you get the best insurance rate out there. He will shop your quote at 10 different uh, providers, and he will find you the best and most affordable one. Everything's expensive right now. Gas, groceries. Um, I don't know, national championship tickets, merch, all kinds of stuff's expensive right now. You can't lose going with my buddy, Matt Mims. He's a longtime friend of mine. I wouldn't steer you to someone I don't trust. I can promise you that. He is going to get you the best insurance quote in the industry. All you got to do is give him a call at 601-218-7854. If you're anywhere in the Magnolia State or in the uh, in Oxford surrounding area, all across the Magnolia State, anything you need insured, home, auto, car, maybe you got a boat, Congrats to you for having a boat. That's pretty sick. You need it insured. Mims is your guy. You need to call him. He's going to help you out. He'll get you set up. Check him out there. 601-218-7854. Let him remove the hassle of surfing insurance and shopping different claims. It's kind of a complicated process. It's hard to, a lot to digest. He's going to do that for you, and he's going to send you the best one, and you get to pick which one you want to go with. Boom. Check him out. Matt Mims there. Thank, glad to have him on board. All right. Here is Chase Parham on the parade. This run as a whole, Mike Bianco's legacy, and uh, a lot more. All right, he is Chase Parham. He's back from Omaha. Is that a maroon shirt? It's EKU. There we go. Eastern Kentucky University, Rippy. The Colonels. I'm surprised that hasn't been canceled yet. Um, you were back from Omaha. The uh, you're back from the parade most recently, as we record this somewhat late on a Wednesday night. I guess we'll start there because I know you guys have done a ton of content. We did the post-game show. Colin and I did a podcast. I don't honestly at this point know how to make this that different, but we have not spoken on air um, since Ole Miss won the national title. Let's start with the parade. You were back from you know the celebration or post thing after that. What were your initial impressions? I was coming back from work today. I haven't gotten to consume a ton of the content, but I did see about right before we started recording some of the stuff on baseball. It looked like a zoo. It looked like a Saturday SEC series, to be quite honest. Our default setting is sarcastic and snark and cynical in a lot of ways. And it's easy to do that when you, when, when you cover athletics for a multitude of reasons. Particularly Tonight was really cool, I'll be honest. It was, it, it was really neat. It was – it's a thing where – I'm, I'm kind of ramble for a second. But I was sitting there, and I was thinking about it, and I thought, okay – and Mike even mentioned this too – what do I get to remember? I mean, I covered the College World Series. I covered the team. I, the team I cover won the national championship. And from a while I was an Omaha standpoint, what am I going to remember? Well, I remember a couple of personal anecdotes about being with other people and other media members, things along those lines. But from a job standpoint, I remember being on the field after the game, all the things going on while they're celebrating, being able to find Carl, those kind of deals where you you have some moments with some some people that you you know and you care about, but. I kind of thought, okay, no matter what else happens, that's the memory I'm going to take. And it probably still is, but I'll be honest, that celebration tonight, it was as well done as you could have hoped. It was, it was maybe a little long. I thought they had a few too many speakers potentially, but for the most part, it was well done. It was kind of chill bump producing a little bit at times. They, 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 it was incredibly produced. The fans showed up like crazy. I mean, you can see pictures of the parade with the confetti around downtown, and it, it made for really good art and, and, and really good photos. And then they get everybody in the stadium, and I, I wasn't sure. I talked to some of the people, and I said, okay, what do you expect? What's the crowd? And most people said, I don't know, 
four or five thousand, somewhere around there. Because I mean, that's a, that's a big number. But when I was driving up, because I didn't go to the parade, I went to just celebration. And when I was driving up, I thought, no, this is not four or five thousand because I can't get to the stadium. The parking lot that I parked in was full. I had to pull down to another area. It did. It felt like just in the parking lot that it was like an SEC Saturday. It was. It was. It was full. So I get I, I get to the stadium, and at that point, I was maybe 45 minutes early, and there were already 2,500, 3,000 people there in the grandstands, and left field was starting to fill up. And then all of a sudden, there is this rush down the hill from behind the band practice field toward the stadium, and it's people who had been at the parade and were now coming into the Swayze. And it was, it was like the damn unleashing. And they come, they fill up the entire thing, Right field only had a few people in the student section. Left field was as full as any left field all season, and the grandstand was at capacity, essentially. There was people standing up everywhere. I'm terrible at these guesses, but if you said guess in attendance, 9,000, 10,000, 9,500, somewhere in there. I mean, it was a zoo. It was a spectacle. It was loud at times. It was it was it was as loud as a game at multiple points, depending on what was going on. They had a really well produced video. Um, before the game, or before the game, hell, there you go. The, before the uh, before the speeches, they had all these different things that were were incredibly well 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 done. I mean, it was it was it was a celebration. And then I've been using this word the entire time. And I think for Mike, I think for the fan base, it was also a final cleansing. It was a way to put a cap on it, to acknowledge it, to celebrate it, and to talk about that. Time after time again, you got to these moments where Ole Miss historically in the past has wilted or folded or been just short of whatever their objective is. And instead, they just beat the door now. Every time they stepped up, every time they found the hit, the pitch, the thing that, that led them to a national championship. There was a lot of talk about 7-14. and 14. There was a lot of talk about trying to stick together through those things. I mean, there was they covered the whole story. I thought that was impressive. It had been really easy in a school-sponsored celebration to just go, hey, wow, we went to Omaha, we ran through people. But it wasn't. It was talking a lot about, you know, Mike gave a really kind of off-the-cup, eloquent speech, speech, and it was talking about that it wasn't just that they won the national championship. It was, it was how they won the national championship. It was the story behind these guys when they were left for dead so many times and I think that fans were celebrating the win. Fans were celebrating this team that, you know, is a team that was kind of devoid of personality for the first half of the season. It was, a, it was a team that was somewhat hard to like because there weren't a lot of personalities. There weren't a lot of storylines. But it became the story of the unit. It wasn't individuals. It kind of just became the story of the team. Fans fell in love with their story. They celebrated that. And then I also think they celebrated Ole Miss as an entity winning the national title. Ole Miss is an entity not having the we are Ole Miss connotation. Not, you know, Ole Miss not doing that thing where they're celebrating the almost. Doing what Tennessee right now does where they go, well, yeah, we went 4-0 and against the teams that finished first and second. That's kind of always been the, the thing. Sport. Yeah, instead – well, good point. Instead, it was, no, we won the national championship. We overcame these things. We're the, we're the, we're the. And you would hope that – that's something that goes across football, basketball, baseball in general, where now the fan goes, hey, we made it. We can take a breath. We can exhale. It was – it was – there was a certain therapeutic nature to that thing tonight in a lot of ways, and I think Mike felt that too. I think for the first time in a really long time, Mike's just a baseball coach, not a baseball coach that has this monkey on his back and this 
this thing and this reputation of, of what could have been. It's, it's something that is now for Mike Bianco. Yeah, there's a lot of different directions we could go off that. That's really well said. The first of which I'll – like one, one of the things I thought of in just like the five-minute video clip I watched or five minutes of video clips, I should say, is the fact that it's also – like they hadn't been in that place in a long time with that amount of people. It's not like they played a home regional, played a home super, and they were the last team standing in Omaha, and so they were 10 days away from their last game removed there. Look, I get that they had practiced there. They'd been at the facility throughout this run. But in terms of just a setting like that with actual fans in the stands, their last game in Swayze Field was May 21st. I mean, as we sit here on June 29th, that's, what, over five weeks? Like, that's a long time. And it honestly makes the run seem even sweeter in a lot of ways just from the fact that how they did it. And it's kind of the perfect way to think about it in a lot of ways. They've had six home games since May 1st. That's insane. And that's with two of their last SEC series being at home, right? Like, that's that's pretty nuts. Like, if the schedule had broken a different way, you actually probably could have had, like, three games over the final month or so, whatever the case may have been. But it's it's interesting to see the reaction. Actually, it's not interesting. It's what I thought the reaction would be. But for some reason, even just seeing it through a phone screen, you know, a couple states away, like, it was really kind of – like it, it kind of blew me away and it shows that this place will one support a winner but this has been the most consistent winner on campus for the last two decades and they finally just got over the top you mentioned like the we are old miss mantra and all of that but like you're right they finally got over the hump like they finally produced an actual winner I always figured I won't say always I was convinced partially that Mike Bianco would be the head coach longer than I live um, just because after 2019 I was like I was like, honestly, like, damn it, this guy's never gonna, this guy's never going away. And now, I'm vindication. Now I'm right. But on like a more serious note, I just like, I always figured if Mike did enough to stick around, they were eventually going to have something like this. I figured they might sneak their way into a national championship or get really, really damn close, a lot closer than they had been in his first 22 years. And then they finally did it. I just didn't think it would be this group. I honestly, you know, if you'd have pulled me in May or April, we can even just say April before things got really bad this probably still would have been one of the bottom four teams of all of his teams that I figured would have done it. And I think that's cool that they covered the entire story um, because you're right. It would have been easy to just show highlights from Omaha, but like that is part of this team's thing. And that's probably why they became the unit. Like they didn't really have any other choice. They were so bad for a while. Like the entire unit had to be better um, for them to even have a chance. I mean, it required an eight and two run uh, that included a sweep at LSU against, and then a win at Southern Miss. And if you want to make it an 11th game, a cancellation against Arkansas State to even get into this tournament and have this run, it's a, it's a remarkable story. And it's cool that they covered it in a lot of ways. I'm just curious. We'll keep it rolling on the, like the celebration part of it. How did that unfold? I saw the whole Elko-Keith Carter statue thing in terms of just G-rated humor. I thought that's about as top-notch as you can get. So congrats <laughs> to Keith there. That's pretty cool. Are the are they all the dudes all the guys having sunglasses on because of what was consumed on the trolley or is it because of the sun? Like paint the picture of how it like unfolded. Yeah, Suss, it's it's probably worth the read. He actually followed the entire parade and he was doing okay. kind of a gamer from the parade. So Suss is probably worth the read. They uh, there was some beverages. There was uh, I, I know some fans had thrown some up into the parade for uh, for people. Good for them. They, that would have uh, been a buzzkill. Like, let the guys live. Let's not go over under wristbands on your championship parade. Let the kids live. 
at the end of the day, nobody's going to punish the, the the non-scholarship sport for that, are they? Like, come on, it's going to be all right. It's, no, it's I don't all think fine. they're going to send alcoholic beverage control up in their little yellow vest to start busting kids on the trolley, but that's neither here nor there. Anyway, I derailed you. The players really enjoyed it. The parade was fun. The parade was cool. There was a shit ton of people. I mean, with everything Ole Miss has done this week, it was just a crap ton of people. Like, yeah. they're everywhere. I mean, that, that that's what's so neat about it is that because, I mean, Mike admitted it. He said that he was laughing. He said that when he got off the – the or when he got the note that, hey, you know, you guys are going to be back at Swayze and when you're coming back from Omaha and we're going to run you through the Walk of Champions. Instead of doing the, the baseball field arrival, we're going to put you in the Grove. And Mike said he got to thinking about it and he was like, hold on a minute. There were 20,000 Ole Miss fans in Omaha. We're getting back before any of them are back. There's going to be nobody there because who's left and now you're going to put us in the Grove the walk of champions is incredibly long. It's going to take a lot of people. He's like, and he said, he's like, literally to myself, I went, this is really bad marketing. This is, this is going to suck. And he's like, we're going to tell them all to stand close together. And then you get there and there were 5,000 people in the Grove. I mean, they were, they were everywhere. I mean, it's. It's I, the I, dead I, middle I, of June. I, 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 it's been a long time since I've been a student, but there's a chance that it's in between. We can get some of our younger demographic to check in on this. There's a chance it's in between summer sessions, too. Like Roman Anthony, the, the baseball prospect, moved in today. So it is between summer sessions. It, it's the deadest piece of it. That, that's the most amazing part to me. You have to bring a lot of people into town tourism-wise to fill up it on the SEC weekend, and for it to produce that is pretty remarkable. And I'm not suggesting that so, no one came into town, but the amount of people to take a Wednesday off it's not a game. It's not a ticket. You're not buying anything. It's just to go celebrate. It's, it's remarkable. Well, it's, and it's kind of where I was going with this. And I, mean, I, I know I'm beating a, a bit of a dead horse, but when you look at this fan base and you look at everything that Ole Miss has done in baseball and the, the will, the desire, the buy-in from this fan base and this program, because, look, Mike, if you really want to talk about where he gets credit and what he's done well, there's two things. He's been a – a hellaciously consistent program that never bottoms out because everybody else bottoms out but him. I mean, Arkansas went like 10 and 20 years ago. It happens. And then the second thing is his ability to promote his program to his fans, the things that he does. I mean, you, you, you know, if you want to put a lot of negative connotation, you put micromanaging, but a lot of it has worked. A lot of the things from a marketing standpoint that Mike has done and his accessibility and the things they do, it has worked, and it's built this DNA of a fan base that I get it's not football. I'm not even putting it in the classification as football because football is its own animal. But what he has done beyond football is from a straight a fan, the average fan, feeling like they know a program, know the players, know the coaches. They know exactly what they're getting. That has an emotional connection to the product on the field because of the way the product on the field gives back to them. It's baseball. It's been baseball for a really long time. It's been baseball since Mike got here. And I think that you're seeing that in a lot of ways, too, is that, it, it, look, football would have had 80,000 people in the, in, in the ball had they won a title. I understand that. But the links that they have gone to on a Wednesday to Omaha to do all these different things, it's because they feel a very emotional connection to this baseball program, to this man, to this team, as, they, as, as they've done everything with them. Because they've all lived this heartbreak, too. They, had, they were there for 2014 when they finished third, and 2018 on Black Monday, and 2009 when, you know, Evan Button throws a ball past Matt Smith and all those different things. I mean, there's – I keep using the phrase this week, there's scar tissue. There's so much scar tissue to get to this point and to get that full relief of we didn't just get there. We didn't just finish second. I mean, 
think how important those two games against Oklahoma were. Because if you lose those things and you finish second, you had a hell of a season, you got back to Omaha, Mike's safe for a really long time. It's great. It's super. But there wasn't t- there wouldn't be 10,000 people at Swayze today. There wouldn't have been 5,000 people to meet them back in the Grove afterwards had they lost twice to the Sooners. Those two games changed not just the program, not just the legacy of Mike Bianco, even though those are two things that changed. It changed an entire fan base in a lot of different ways to give them their title, to calm them down, to let fans go into – I think I told Neil this this morning, every sport you would hope, football, basketball, baseball, and go, we belong. We're there. I think for the longest time it was, hey, compete. We'd like to be there. We've gotten really close. We're not bad. We don't suck. But now you're the best. Now you won the thing. Now you have the title. You, you have kind of that ability to act like you're putting another ring on something inside your conference. There is, there's a lot of emotional, mental stuff that goes along with this from a fan base standpoint. I think it's very, very important. I mean, that's – you know, multiple players, I forget, maybe it was Brandon Johnson who said it. His favorite part of the week was watching all those fan reactions on Twitter that got sent to Peter Burns, where he told people to send them and show me your videos and your pictures. And you saw, you know, fathers and sons and kids and grandparents. And that was that was an Ole Miss baseball celebration, but that was an Ole Miss athletics celebration. That was, that was people for a long time that had been wanting that title in a big three sport and, and, and getting it. And I think that's, you know, that, that's what you're seeing. I mean, it's hard. It's hard to win a national championship. And to, to pull that off, it, it's, it's so many different elements where when you look at it all the way around, Ole Miss had a perfect, and I really mean perfect when I say this, they had a perfect scenario because you didn't just front run. You came back. You showed grit. You were left for dead. You got a break that you usually don't get. And then you walk through the postseason, you dominate. I mean, the average run scored to runs allowed in this postseason for Ole Miss was 7.2 to 2.7. I mean, they dominated their competition throughout this entire tournament. You fill up the stadium. You overwhelm Oklahoma. You, you, you do everything like a major program, and you finish the job. I mean, I said this in the postgame, and I believe it a few days later, especially with what scholarships are going to be in, let's say, two years for sure. It may be sooner. Ole Miss is a top five, top seven baseball program now, and there's no way to argue about that. They've got the ring. It's, 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 you know, look, maybe it's not Vanderbilt, but it's the damn next closest thing. Yeah, and with the without the – I mean, the scholarship piece of it, once that gets eliminated, you're right. I mean, why are they well, – if there's no scholarship thing, what's the difference between them and Arkansas or them and Texas A&M or really anyone? I mean, NIL money will be the only thing deciding things. Because, I mean, hell, I was, I was told today Christian Little at LSU got $100,000 for a baseball player. Oh, my God. I, that, <laughs> I Yeah, that'll be something – you know, uh, the Grove Collective. There you go. Hopefully. Yeah, different time, different day. That's not that's not a conversation for right now, but I was told that. But another element of it, of just like the, the symmetry of all of it, or just the, the entire storyline being fitting, it's like you did that story a couple of years ago on the uh, kind of like the oral history of how Swayze Field was built. If I remember back to the time, that was a big week for oral histories in the uh, on the beat. But um, <laughs> the, he's celebrating it in a stadium that he pretty much built. I mean, look, Swayze Field was there, but that did not look like it did today or really anything close to it. I mean, I, I remember talking to Mike one time before I left, um, and I think they were doing like the, the dugout club maybe, or maybe it was the next level of player-centric renovations. I honestly can't remember what it was, but he was talking about 
I think it was like a crane or something that was pissing him off about like he was trying to get into work or something. There was a crane or something there, but they were like running out of ways to renovate it and running out of stuff to do. And I know everyone like to make fun of that party tent out there. Is that still out there? Has that been taken down? It has been taken down. Yes. What a shame. Uh, it looked like a wedding. Uh, I think it will be, I mean, I think they will have another something in place for next season because look, I, it did not look great. It's not going down. Well, here's the deal. When you have people that want to come into your game and pay you a lot of money to do that, you find ways to get them into the game and take the money. Oh, and a non-revenue sport too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they, they need to stick the little uh, – the trolley out in center field and make that the – you know, everyone toss beers to them and that's how they pay for beers. I don't know. I could get some marketing to get some people in the stadium for them. But just the fact that that's a place he's built – like, in a lot of ways, to me, the, the stadium kind of – like symbolizes like the program he's built in a lot of ways, at least from the marketing standpoint and the interest he generated. And you're right. Like a lot of it is micromanaging. Look, I mean the, it's all the way down to like the opening day donuts thing. Mike wanders his ass out there every year and gives all those kids waiting outside donuts. And like, that might seem like a small thing, but he does it every single year to the point where yeah. I almost like look forward to the video of him being like, how do you do fellow kids? Here's some glazed donuts. <laughs> but like, it's the type of stuff that he cares about that kind of makes, that makes it good. You're right. I mean, I don't, it's funny. Like we talk about Mike being this rigid guy who insulates himself in a bubble, but he's the most, until Lane Kiffin showed up, he was the most active Twitter account on campus. And, like, he doesn't look at his mentions, and he's not creating a dog account that one of his recruiting people is going to run. But he does get that to a degree that I feel like some other people in his profession and across other college sports don't. And that part of it's pretty impressive, and I think that's probably a side of you got to it today. Um, because, like, I, I, I use this example a lot. But like, I have a bunch of friends that don't care – they don't like baseball at all, particularly Major League Baseball. They actively make fun of the segment of our friend group that likes Major League Baseball. They think it's boring as hell. They talk about scratching your nuts and eating bubble gum or whatever the case may be. But I have friends that don't really like – like, this is going to sound stupid. They don't like baseball, but they like Ole Miss baseball. And not only do they like it, they're, like, really into it. Um, and they're not, like, baseball people at all. Like, they probably don't understand, like, you know – why a kid's throwing a slider in a certain counter, what makes a pitcher just incredible. But they're into it. They know all the players. They know well, who they're playing. They know exactly, like, who's going to start and who should start wearing things like that. And that's the type of fan to me that Mike has probably done a great job of getting, and it speaks to the consistency of it, because it's people that wouldn't otherwise care about a sport that on the professional level is kind of decaying in a lot of ways. And it, that's the most fascinating part of it to me is the people that care that probably wouldn't otherwise if they sucked. The program accessibility, and it's what I didn't probably articulate that I was thinking of a minute ago when I got off on one of my other tangents, is that's what's made this connection, is the player signing the autographs after every game. The Sunday, not just the running the bases, but the amount of time that, that, that goes on with that. The way that, look, Mike does micromanage in a lot of ways. He doesn't have to as much now because Ole Miss is better in marketing and better in fan experience than they were at different other points of, of his tenure. But that's how Mike – that was the system. I mean, I interviewed John Schaefer, the Ole Miss Athletics Director, who hired Mike Bianco in 2000 yesterday or two days ago or whatever it is by now. And he talked about that when he was eating at the University Inn, he was eating breakfast with Mike the day that he was interviewing him. And Mike talked about the system, but it wasn't just the system of how to win games. It was how to build a culture around a program from fan engagement all the way down the list. And one of Mike's things was – care about every fan, find ways to connect with them, say yes to speaking engagements. I mean, for years, Mike, because Dan McDonald learned this from him and told me about it, Mike would leave a, basically a jacket and tie on the back of his door 
at all times because if somebody asked him to go speak, he just said yes and went, there might be somebody in there who decides I want to go to Ole Miss baseball games and that's what I want to do and I'm hearing this man talk and I'm going to decide to do it. So Mike did a real kind of guerrilla marketing grassroots effort for a long time to help build this thing and he still has those tentacles in him. I mean, that's still what you're seeing. When he – when he gets annoyed by the scoreboard and having oh, a pixel go out. Oh, you beat me to it. I was about yeah, to ask, when he hit, you remember how pissed he got that day that there was a black piece in the scoreboard? Going? It drives him insane. But it's because he wants the everything about the experience to look exactly right. He wants it to work. He doesn't want the fan to work. Like, I mean, they would have people out there wiping the water out of seats early in his career if it had rained. I mean, like, it, it's it's detail-oriented to a point that, Yes, it's a little neurotic, and we can make fun of it, but there was a method behind the madness in a lot of ways. It was, it was, there was a reason for that, and it was to connect to not just the average fan or the diehard fan, but the fan who was giving you a chance for maybe the first time. And if he's giving you the chance for the first time, then don't screw it up. Find a way to get him back for the next game. And he's obviously beyond that now. They sold 8,000 season tickets last year. They're going to sell as many seats as they can put in that damn place for next season. But – it, it, it's what's built that program. I mean, it's it's what Schaefer talked about. It's what Keith talked about. It's what – it's why I was happiest for Mike. Um, because for the most part, we like each other. We've, we've, had our, we've had our issues. But he's a guy who deserved it because he's a guy who has done everything else so well. His team doesn't get in trouble. His team makes good grades. His team is, is good in the community. He, he hits so many different things that are necessary and positives for your program. They're so consistent. The fan base deserved the national championship. And it got it. I mean, you saw that. And I think you're going to see an interesting Mike Bianco the rest of his career. And a Mike Bianco that – I mean, I'm going to work on this in a number of different ways to get this out of him. I think it's a Mike Bianco that's been tormented. I think he has been tormented by the lack of a championship. And I don't just mean Omaha. You know, we always get caught up on – we always get caught up on Omaha. And I understand why. And, look, that's – that's the final four. That's the spectacle. That's if you get there, you had a good season, and you're not going to be in trouble unless you're smoking the ball and you get fired after going twice and how many every years. But Mike Bianco came from LSU where he won three national titles in, in how many ever seasons as an assistant coach. He watched Skip Bertman win five titles and go 5-0 and in championship games over the course of whatever. And – Mike had been at McNeese for three years. But when Mike Bianco took the job at Ole Miss, he thought he would be in Omaha a lot more than he's been. He thought that he would be given opportunities or, or him build opportunities to win national titles. That was his expectation. That was the thing that I think had Mike finished his career without a title, he would consider it – you know, you would hope that he wouldn't consider it a failure because that's not fair. But it would be the one thing that he went, hey – my career was not what I thought it was going to be. It's not the goal I set. And he's got that title now. And when you get that title, I think he's going to maybe even be a better coach. He's not going to have that monkey on his back. He's not going to be worried about, damn, is this the year where I've got to get it done or it's not going to happen? I mean, you always have that go through your head, too. I think that's some of the reasons he'd get tight is that that was really good teams that were in a period of just cutting it so close and the margin was so small and he had to get there at that point. That's all gone now. You can just coach. That's somebody else's baggage. That's somebody else's scar tissue. That's somebody else. That, that's Arkansas's problem. I mean, look at you know Van Horn doesn't have a ring now. I mean, it's 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 a deal where I don't. I think it makes Ole Miss the program better, but I think it makes Mike better. I mean, I talked to him tonight, and he he told me that it's been the busiest forty eight hours of his life, 
all the different things he's had to do. And he ha- he, do- he doesn't think he fully has let it sink in. He doesn't fully appreciate it yet. He said he's putting off calling Skip Bertman because he wants some time to talk to Skip. He knows he's probably going to get emotional, and he just hadn't had that ability to take the time yet to do it. But I think in a lot of ways it is a, it's a validation that he's been searching for for 25 years, that he's been a Division One baseball coach. And because of that, it's it, as these next couple months pass off, I think you're going to see not a – not a gentler, not a lighter, not a less energetic Mike Bianco, but a, but a different Mike Bianco in a lot of positive ways, even for his own mental health, if nothing else. Yeah, that day he got so mad about the scoreboard, I was, like, looking at, at the buttons on my shirt, and I was like, holy shit, is one of these undone? Or, like, I was like, uh-huh. I thought I had it bad, but this SID is about to just have a terrible day. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but, like, you're right, and on top of that, that's what I was going to kind of get to next as we transition to, like, the actual, like, baseball part of it. Colin and I talked about this a little bit late on Monday night. Like, you've covered a lot of seasons, and so you probably have a little bit of a deeper memory. But, like, from particularly of the last, like, four years and you have the weird COVID year in between, I don't really remember covering, like, a season or whatever version of this is now to where it's not like, okay, they're going to get to Omaha or what are we going to talk about storyline now? Like, it's just a season where they just go play baseball. And I'm not saying expectations are tempered by any stretch of the imagination. There's just no – feast or famine in that sense it's kind of been a while the last time that was the case was like 15 and probably should have been to a degree 16 but then that team somehow should have been a national top eight national team wasn't and then loses a home regional 17 was probably the last year honestly because that team was a bunch of freshmen it's like all right you can see it but they stink like the last like half decade has just been like kind of Omaha or bus type of thing and now it's just kind of like they're gonna get to go play baseball and you talk about him being a better version of himself as a coach, um, I don't think he's going to turn into like Zen Mike to where he's uh, trying out different shades and maybe has like a chain or something and is just laid back in press conferences. But I do think uh, like there is probably a version of that where he does become a little bit of a better coach because he doesn't have to worry about anything. And so you saw this, I used this example the other night. It probably wasn't a great one, but like it did take Skip Bertman like seven or eight years to like get it rolling, rolling. I think his like title was like his eighth year in. And that's not – again, Mike's first one was 22 years. And it's not a perfect parallel, but LSU's a different program. I guess what I'm getting at is once it got it rolling and that first time it happened, it really happened for Skip. And I'm not projecting, like, you know, four national titles for Mike. But I just wonder if, like, this is crazy as this sounds, the third decade of his career is when, like, the law of averages comes out and he finally starts making Omaha a lot more and they become a lot more of a – you know, elite eight threat versus a second weekend team, if you want to use a basketball example. Like, they've been right there. They're a good program, not a great one. I wonder if, like, they become a consistently great program over these last, you know, however long he wants to coach. Like, I just wonder if the results come easier now because this was so hard, if that makes any sense. still think, and it's just a guess. I have no idea. I mean, I'll ask him at some point, and I'll see what he says. I don't know if he'll give an honest answer or not. I still think Mike's got – Five to seven more years in him. That's a guess. Has he um, before that he he doesn't want to do this till he's like seventy something? I remember him saying that one time. He's fifty five. He told me two years ago that he wanted to do it ten more years. Um. So it's maybe it was two or three years ago. He said ten more years. It take half a decade, right? Like if he goes to sixty. Oh no, actually that he was he said that when he was fifty five, or he said that when? No, he said that when he was like fifty two. He's fifty five now. So. 
somewhere in that 62, 65 range sounds right. 13, 10. He t- he, I mean, he, he like made the motion. I've told you this. And he said, he made, he said he didn't want to be Wayne Graham still walking out to the mound. And he kind of like did like the little Wayne Graham thing. Um, former rice coach that coach leaves incredibly old for anybody who's out of it. But no, he, I mean, he's still a young guy. He's, I mean, he's frankly fitter than he's been at any point. He's lost weight. He's thin. I mean, he's, he, he's in good shape. Um, He's got two kids at Ole Miss. He, he, he's fine to coach for a while. He's going to be here for a little while. And, yeah, I think – I know what you're saying, and I, I think you're right because it's also self-fulfilling. When you win a national title, you also have the ability to recruit better, get more portal guys. I mean, your, your roster has the potential to be better. I think there's going to be some NCAA policy stuff that makes them be a better program coming up in the next 12 to 18 months or whatever it is. And, yes, from a fan base standpoint, from a program standpoint, there's none of that crap. You just go win another title. Get back to Omaha. You're expected to in a positive way. The pressure's all positive. And I don't, I don't even know how to articulate this. Once you get a title as a coach, you get even better at promoting your players in positive ways to make them feel comfortable. You don't become like an old man. I don't mean it like that. But an edge comes off of you in a good way. And I think you'll see that from from Mike as well, coaching and moving forward. Um, and look, this you know this fan base is bought in. They're going to travel. I mean, that was that was the other part. In the last kind of thing I was thinking of is that. And what was so cool about the weekend? I'm bouncing all over the place, but it's okay. Yeah, that way. Ole Miss. Man. Ole Miss won, and won the party. And we always talk about that. Ole Miss is always known for the party, but you know it's been. At times, that's a negative because it's almost like a crutch. It's like, hey, they didn't win the game, but they were great, and they did this, and they showed out. But fan support's never a liability. It's always a good thing, and Ole Miss has some of the top fan support in the country. But it was so cool on Saturday and Sunday to see Ole Miss celebrate and have a party because of the win. That's a different thing. That It's a different thing to show up and the winning be the priority and the winning be what happens. Because to do that, it's got to be something that really matters. It's got to be NCAA tournament basketball. It's got to be, you know, a regular season football game with, with meaning. You know, a bowl, ga- bowl games are cool. They're really, really cool. The Sugar Bowl is awesome. Winning it is very important. But it's an exhibition. You're not winning the national title. You're not moving forward. You're still just having a big time. And if you lose, ah, hell, whatever. This is different. This was, this was a bowl game atmosphere where you overwhelmed an opponent, caused an opponent to make mistakes because of your crowd, and it was for something incredibly significant. That hasn't happened for Ole Miss a lot. That's not been the common thing where they showed up as a perennial power program that brought all these people and essentially intimidated other programs with their fan support and their play on the field. Oklahoma was completely rattled. Oklahoma did not know how to handle that environment. They tried to convince themselves of it on Saturday night. And when that thing got rolling on Sunday, it just steamrolled in the eighth inning, and they couldn't throw the ball to the catcher, and Jimmy Crooks couldn't catch it, and he was getting all shaken up. And it was, it was crowd-related. I mean, it was, it was because Ole Miss had put pressure on them as a team, and then the walls kind of caved in at that point, and it, it, it made a difference. I mean, it was almost kind of like the team and the fans and everybody in Omaha they were just all in this damn thing together, and all together they, they, they brought back a national title. On the coach piece of it, though, one last thing I wanted to hit was, like, Mike, 
like that don't that shouldn't be mistaken for like complacency. I think it will free him up, but Mike worked for Skip Bertman, and that's a guy does Skip have the most national titles? I know that cat at USC has a bunch and I mean he might be Ronda though. Yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Like, yeah, yeah, and then there's a dude well, who's the dude that coached at Arizona State and Stanford? I don't know, but I think national titles wise, anyway, it doesn't matter. Mike coached for a guy who is a legend in the sport. Mike's a really damn good coach and probably a top five coach in country. He's not a legend like yet in the sport. And without going full first take on you, I just like to articulate the point. I think he'll be as driven as ever. Like Mike's the guy, even though he doesn't want to admit it, I bet he thinks about stuff like that. Like if he wins three, he'll be think he'll be thought of differently than if he just has the one and built a great program at Ole Miss. And like that's not the type of stuff that's going to keep him up at night. But do you think in a lot of ways you see an as driven or even more driven Mike Bianco to just like, all right, let's turn this thing into four. And let's really try to – I mean, I don't think he's a guy that spends every waking day thinking about his own legacy type of thing. But, like, let's take this to an even bigger level. I just think the fact that he worked for Skip Bertman and just the fact that you mentioned the all the attention to detail piece, I just think you might see an even more driven one. And the fact that it frees him up might work to his benefit or definitely work to his benefit, I'd actually say. Ron Dado has 10 national titles, the former uh, Southern California coach. How many of those were so, they in Omaha? Do what? How many of those were the eight teams in Omaha or a full college world series, like a full NCAA tournament? Mm, I, I mean, all of them were at least eight teams, but I don't know anything about that. I'm assuming because let's see, he, it just doesn't really matter. He won them. Uh, I don't know. He was, his heyday was like 68 to 78. Somewhere in there, but whatever. It doesn't really I'll matter. I'll make an arbitrary cutoff line. Before there was a cable TV with more than <laughs> post that. <laughs> but, like, don't you think, like, in a, in a way, like, he would – I mean, of course, he's competitive, but I just think there's a drive to him, and he thinks about things in the big picture. You mentioned that holding off calling Skip Bertman, that, you know, two, three, we go crazy and go four, will put him in the even rarer air. And, like, he's a guy that appreciates the history of the game. I just think that has to be in the back of his mind somewhere. Mike is certainly one title, maybe one or two more Omaha trips from a Hall of Famer. Hell, he may be one now. Um, it's close. You know, he needs a, probably needs a few more Omaha wins. I mean, I'm looking at it here. The top ten coaches in men's College World Series wins, I mean, like, games, not titles. Um Pat Casey has 21. He's ninth. Jim Morris, 22, with Mike Martin, who never won a title. Ray Tanner, 23. Ron Frazier, 26. Skip, here's a hell of a stat. Skip Bourbon only has 29 College World Series wins, and he has five titles. Well, he reeled off like three in like five years, didn't he? he well, and you also can only – back then you could, you could win just four games and win it because, you know, the final was only one game. Oh, I actually didn't know that. It wasn't two out of three. All five of his championships are one-game finals. That seems incredibly stupid. <laughs> the entire, you don't it, like that rule? No, I mean, the, the, the entire sport is based off double elimination. You're just going to get to the final, and it's like, all right, nine innings. If, you know, a guy has a rough first inning, sorry, better luck next year. Like, that, that seems pretty dumb. They did it for TV. They would just play, like, one game at 3 o'clock on, like, a Saturday or some crap. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, but he went five. No, no, point being, though, you're right. It, it's freeing him up. And, look, I, do I think it consumes him? No. I think Mike's a pretty happy man overall that is that feels fortunate for what he does. But 
he's got an eye on a legacy. He, he knows the score. I mean, he's aware that he's 20 wins from passing Skip Bertman and all-time SEC wins. I'll guarantee Mike knows that number. That'll be a big deal to him next year. I just – he's too classy of a man to do this, but, man, it would have been awesome if he'd have gotten the microphone today and have been like, this had been a real shame if I'd have resigned in April. <laughs> Does anyone still want that? <laughs> I'm taking a little bit of a victory. I even just working a subtle shot in there, but he's, uh, again, too gracious of a guy in some ways um, for that to be the case. I wanna- Here's a question for you. And, again, I don't think he obsesses over this. No, no, not in – do you, do you think – if he gets really close, and now look, it's a big number. I mean, hold on. I've got a reason for asking this. It's 79. It's basically 1,200. If he got close to Ron Polk for most all-time SEC wins, you think he would coach an extra year or two to get that number? Would that be the sole circumstance no. Like, so, like, I've, I, I listened to a bunch of NBA podcasts, and, like, LeBron was, like, chasing some sort of innocuous scoring record this year, and, like, he obsessed over stuff like that. But if there was – if it was teetering on the brink of, like, should I retire, pros – like, there were multiple pros and cons to say it was, like, 60-40. Could that push it over the top? Like, if it was 60-40 retire, could the fact that he wanted to get to Ron Polk or a number like that would that push him over the edge to keep going? Yes, I think my that would be my answer. There's a hell of an active coach race right now between him and Van Horn and Corbin. Yeah, that's a They're good. all pretty tight, and it, 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 it's pretty close between the three of them. Well, he needs to hire a PR campaign to discount Corbin's titles for the fact that he gets 30 scholarships. <laughs> He's got the ring culture thing over Van Horn, so Mike's in pretty good shape there. And honestly, if it got down to it, um, are Mike and Polk friendly? Didn't they like each other? Yeah, I think they uh, I think they got along in kind of the same hatred for the NCAA and the scholar. They, they were sort of pulling in the same direction, if you will. Like yeah, it was that, a. I mean, but if it came down to it, and like the, you were you were having a debate about it, Mike could just hold up his ring. Um, <laughs> he's got that going for him. But like, no, I, I I do think that that would factor into it. I do think he cares enough to where that would be a a factor instead of just some guy that doesn't care at all and just rides off into the sunset. The actual national title piece of this, just because we haven't talked about it, I was – I didn't know what I thought. I thought on paper it wasn't a great matchup just because of Bennett being as good as he was and it being a left-hander. But, like, hell, I, I mean, this sounds insane, but if, top, if you want to pull in the crowd piece of it, who knows how that game goes if the first inning doesn't happen. I mean, they were totally consumed by that crowd. They're all American shortstop, just kicked the ball. Um, and then, you know, that game inning was nothing. They got the, – the first two guys were, were out. And then all of a sudden, it just turned into an avalanche. Just the way that unfolded, it was kind of fitting that, you know, you had everybody kind of have their moment. You had a good Hunter Elliott performance. Brandon Johnson gets the last couple out. But then, like, the crowd had their piece of it, too. Oklahoma looked overwhelmed. I don't know what they said in their press conference. They can say whatever they want. I saw some quote about how, well, we've been to Gainesville. We've been to Blacksburg. It's like, dude, there's 20, 25,000 people in the stands. You haven't been anywhere like that. There's not a place that holds that. Yeah, that he, his he, what he said. What he said was that he didn't care about the crowds. It had no impact. That they lived to shut up the crowds, and that yes, they had won at Florida and won at Virginia Tech. That was the the quote. Well, I think if you put five of Florida stadiums <laughs> in one place, you might have gotten to that capacity, and that's with their recent renovation. So I don't know if he was on point there, but 
Well, I mean, you were there. It sounded like a damn football game. The back-to-back – I said that over and over again on, on Monday, and Danny wanted to listen before that, and I wasn't the only one that had that sentiment. But it really was immediately – the back-to-back-to-back home run sounded like a football game, and it was just kind of pure euphoria. But it was – I mean, how long did that take to get used to of you guys up in the Prescott's covering it? Because I remember I sat down in my seat, and I was like, all right, this is a pretty cool scene. And the first thing happened, I was like, all right, this is a little bit louder than your usual college baseball game. But, you know, when, when you're sitting in and you're amongst the crowd, it just kind of it becomes part of the game. Like, that had to be pretty surreal given, like, what, where you guys sit normally compared to whatever that was on Saturday night. And there's we no in- section. I bought t- – I'll, I'll use this example. I bought tickets just to have something to get in the game on Friday, on uh, Saturday. And I was like, all right, I'll try to get on the Ole Miss side just because it would be weird to get stuck in a section of, you know, maroon Oklahoma fans. <laughs> well, after about two innings on Saturday, I had yet to buy tickets for Sunday. I was like – there is no Oklahoma section. The entire state is <laughs> in section. You can buy tickets wherever the hell you want to outside of like three rows. That was remarkable. Richard said this on his show. I might have said this on one of the post-game shows. On Sunday, they did not sell their allotment. There was they didn't sell the 700 tickets. out in the shade that I assume was mostly parents and hooking up the parents in the shade. That was it. We had two Oklahoma fans behind where I was sitting with my brother and my, a couple of my friends. And it was just very, like, scattered across. And when they – on the rare moments they did something well and they got to, like, stand up and cheer, like, it was kind of like whack-a-mole. It was like, oh, there it is. Like, there's a couple of them out there. I mean, it was – Well, i tell you what they would do. So, because in the – I guess they did it – for anybody that wasn't there, they would do, like, this, hey, Oklahoma's doing whatever, and you would have, like, the cheers isolated through the mic or the PA or whatever when something was going well. And I think what it reminded me of is that – when it was Ole Miss, you could just tell the crowd was cheering and celebrating or whatever. But when Oklahoma would cheer, it would almost sounded like they were piping in the crowd noise from yeah. like a video or something. It didn't it didn't sound right because there weren't enough Oklahoma fans there to make that noise. It reminded me of like in the movie Major League where the couple fans are sitting in the outfield like banging the drum and like you just stuck a microphone in between them and like we're like hey hey hey, hey and they're like clapping and yelling into the mic because. Yeah, they, they they just weren't there. I mean, they were they were nowhere. I mean, because I kind of thought the same thing. I mean, I was I looking around. I was like, oh well, that's the Oklahoma section. And I'm like, hold on a minute, the Oklahoma section's powder blue. I'm not seeing any in, in anything else there. And I was talking. I was sitting next to the rivals guy from Oklahoma, and he was like, what the hell is this? And I was like, I, I mean, I don't I don't know. I don't know. And I was like, what? I was like, do y'all not draw or not you? But like, does Oklahoma not draw? Like, what's the deal? And he basically – because he, he gave, like, a bunch of bad excuses. Like, I think I told this to Neil. He was like, well, you know, they're, they're probably still a little tired from, you know, the, the, the trip to the College World Series in softball. And I'm like, it was in Oklahoma City. They slept in their own bed. It was, like, 15 minutes down the road. That doesn't count. Yeah, like, what, like, what are you talking about? Um, and then when I looked it up, I saw that their largest Saturday home crowd of the season was 1,398. 1,300? Yes. Well, maybe then they did draw well. Or half that well. I mean, that, that, geez. I mean, but that just kind of shows the gap in the sport, I guess. I mean, it's kind of the SEC and everyone else at this point. I mean, what, what fan bases give, give a shit besides the SEC at this point? Um, I think it's fair to say a lot of the ACC does. It's um, like pockets, right? Uh, like East Carolina definitely cares. Like, you know, I mean, it's, it's like programs like that, but like it's, 
I mean, I, I, that's a bad example. There's no one that cares as consistently as the SEC does. And I think probably the sign of, like, growth of college baseball is the fact that you have new money people like Tennessee claiming they invented the sport. You had people from Tennessee, and I'm not even just talking about assholes on Twitter. Like, actual media members questioning if this was the best way to crown a national champion because Tennessee couldn't take care of a home super regional. It's like <laughs> – before you guys, it's like you lost to Notre Dame. Shut up! Like, yeah, it's, just, it's 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 remarkable. But the, the like, I did I thought the game? I thought the series would go three. Um, I thought that all it was going to be tough sledding for Ole Miss with Doherty going against Jake Bennett. That was kind of the game for Oklahoma to win. But after the first game, it kind of felt like a coronation. Like when when Gattis got out of that at two to one, I was like, right, this game is there's no way this is ending two to one. And what do you know? The crowd popped in again. Like they Oklahoma kind of peed down their leg. I mean, the, the catcher couldn't catch the ball. The, the announcer said he got crossed up. It was like, dude, he, he, he jumped right up to where the baseball was. It just didn't go in the mitt. It, it was after Friday or Saturday's game, excuse me, I was like, okay, they're probably going to win this. And Reed Horton, or uh, Kate Horton did everything he could to prevent that from happening. He was tremendous. That dude is one MFR. Like, holy that moment, hell. Wow. I mean, he got better as the game went on. He hit 96 like three times in the seventh. Ole Miss, Oklahoma had two great starting pitchers. Bennett's really good. Horton's really good. Ole Miss had the better team outside of them. Ole Miss had the better roster, one through 35 or one through 27 or whatever. But Oklahoma had two pitchers where, look, that's what made their national championship chances real. Because if you said Bennett and Horton just won two baseball games, that wouldn't blow anybody out of the water. They're that good. Um, Ole Miss had better at bats. They were relentless. And it's where I think Oklahoma got so rattled. It's it's back to your other question. I didn't fully answer it. Is that the crowd noise was different, obviously. But what was different about the crowd noise and what reminded me of a football game to me was that most baseball games have a lull. Most baseball games, something crazy happens and the crowd kind of quiets down. And then something crazy happens and it kind of quiets down. It was loud the entire time. Every there was time. Even in between pitches, like everything had this – this mild roar to it in the stadium where it never fully settled. I mean, for the full 18 innings, it was just this hair on fire thing. And you're right. I mean, after, you know, the back-to-back back home runs in the eighth on, on Saturday and then on Sunday when that eighth inning started ball rolling or when Gaddis got out of that, got out of that jam, it was like every old Miss person in the place. It's almost like, Hey, you can't screw with destiny and it's headed your way. Like it felt like instead of freak out, it's like Ole Miss fans got energized in both those games, and it was just kind of hell the rest of the way. And it was like – I'm curious to get your thoughts on this piece of it. When you talk about the whole story of this team, as I was thinking about it the other night on the plane ride home, it's not only the fact that they were 7-14 and 14 as the collective unit. There's a bunch of, like, individual stories of, like, sticking with it and almost having an almost irrational belief that things were going to get better despite there not being a ton of evidence. Like, even, like, a guy like Peyton Chaudnier, that dude had played in every single game in his career and started all of them but two. And, like, he gets benched at Kentucky and, like, doesn't really get a ton better after that for the next couple weeks. Like, you have Calvin Harris who, you know, he had that hand injury or whatever it was. that the, I forgot what his injury actually was. Oblique. That, oblique. Yeah, that's not a hand. Um, the that derailed a pretty hot start to the season. And, like, he had only started two of nine games, the last nine games where he got inserted in the regional final and didn't really miss a beat. And, like, John Gaddis, a dude that deferred med school, like, he wanted to be a weekend rotation guy. Guess what? That didn't happen. He was pulled between the first week of the SEC, but he stayed in, engaged 
or excuse me, after two weekends of SEC play, but he stays engaged and gets four of the biggest outs of the season. I mean, the list goes on and on. He was the winning pitcher in the championship game of the World Series. Yes, like, the, exactly. That's a great way to put it. But, like, it goes on and on. Like, McCants gets the hit that sparks the eighth-inning rally, kind of ejects Horton from the game there. He had a terrible year in multiple fronts. and He hits the two-run bomb against the yeah, left-hander. That he was hitting 190 against left-handers. Two with some momentum for Oklahoma. And then T.J. McCants effectively ended that. Starts the rally. Like, he stuck with it. There were so many guys that overcame, like, individual struggles on a very minor sense in some cases. But even, like – Gonzalez, he was he made the joke after the game that he was like, I'm glad I finally got to help them this week. But like he was three for twenty-two in the college world series prior to that game. I was asking you if he was healthy. I was like, he doesn't look right. And like my dad had texted me during like one of the Auburn or the first Arkansas games, like think McCann or uh, excuse me, think Gonzalez tweaked something going around third. I was like, whatever, man. And then I was like, well, did he? <laughs> this like what's happening here? But just like the list goes on and on of like the individual guys. All the way back to I guess the biggest one is Elko just from last year, this year. But it, it's a bunch of dudes that had a like all of them had things go wrong for them individually beyond being seven and fourteen. And they all showed out on the biggest moments. That's kind of what makes this a cool story. A little bit of news, too. Uh, Jack Doherty was in a boot today. He has a some sort of stress reaction, stress issue in his foot. He'll be fine. But it does make me wonder, had the season gone a lot longer, if he would have been, been all right. You think that's why? I was going to get to Doherty in a second. He didn't really do anything wrong, and he didn't pitch very often. He had, like, two appearances over the last three weeks of May. Like, I wonder if that was it. But I just – I didn't know if it just wasn't used. But that's – I mean, add that to the list. The guy hadn't – they got started, like, one game since March. And looked phenomenal. (laughs) Didn't throw balls. Everything was, like, on the corner and on the edge. I mean – like, speaking of the Oklahoma guy, he, like, looked over at me, and he was like – I mean, he, he literally goes, like, who the F is this? Except he didn't say F. And I was like, eh, that's a guy who hadn't pitched since mid-March yeah, starting. Like, yeah, like, cause I, I think at that point the Oklahoma guy was like, okay, the hell with it. Like, they're just supposed to win. Like, this is stupid. Every time I like, look up – because you, you hit it. I mean, we're not talking enough about the fact that Peyton Chatagnier didn't commit an error after February 27th, the rest of the freaking season. Didn't have an error. And I get he doesn't have the best range in the world, but hell. And he made – that play on Sunday, he made some really damn good body control defensive plays during this College World Series. Uh, to the point that even in the first inning, when he made that flip and whatever, um, I thought, okay, Ole Miss is winning the game today because it was just a sparkling defensive play, and it was phenomenal. He's a good defensive second baseman. But, like, when, when things go terrible offensively and you get benched, that can affect your defense and kind of your attitude, and he didn't care. Um, it's just – it's remarkable in a lot of senses. I, I, I guess kind of like putting a bow on all of this. Delusia wins the most valuable player, and deservedly so, but couldn't you give it to, like, five dudes? Oh, I would have. I didn't vote because I was in the middle of writing. They, the, the way they do that is kind of stupid when they bring the ballots around. It's not at a time that makes it easy to vote. Um, I would have voted for Delusia. Um, but you could have made an argument for Bench Harris. Yeah. I mean Elliot. For damn sure, Elliot. I mean, hell, if Gaddis wins the Wednesday game, he's got an argument. 
and I mean, Elko, I mean, it's kind of expected what he does. And I get it. He didn't have like the kind of the similar statistics to a couple of those other guys from his perspective, but it's five or six guys that could have won the thing. And it's, and I guess this is the case in all like championship teams, but I mean, they even had guys that didn't necessarily contribute as much that still really mattered. Like as, as important as Josh Mallets was, he's probably the seventh biggest storyline when you're kind of going down the list but like that's a guy that was put in terrible positions as a freshman didn't really let it affect his confidence and somehow became a guy that they were pitching in a 19 to 3 game against Auburn it was like well why don't they give this kid more looks to being the first guy to the bullpen at the end all the way to a guy like Ben Van Cleef like he didn't really get to participate in this but that's a guy that you could tell mattered in that dugout it mattered in that clubhouse and was probably the largest fellow on the team but somehow managed to be the first dude out to the mound every single time after they won a game like that. Like, they, they had every <laughs> character you needed in the best way possible. Um, even on the way to, like, Brandon Johnson, I thought Mike, make it, Mike made an interesting point on Sunday to where he mentioned that, like, Johnson's individual numbers and, like, his individual recognition suffered because of the way the team struggled. Like, he could have had kind of a ridiculous year had this team been, been a national seed because outside of, like, a week and a half stretch, he was unbelievable. I mean, that ninth inning was kind of – probably what everyone will remember him by. And it's really emblematic of what he's been for most of his career. He was kind of like the mallets of la like this year's mallets last year. He couldn't like, can you get this kid opportunities? And when he finally got one, it was like, okay, this kid's really good. They're a team that won a national title despite winning only 42 freaking baseball games. I did they won 42 baseball games winning the national title. Did you see this? No. The Twitter account, you know, they get dumped on every year when they don't make Omaha, and then they put out the we're the only program with X consecutive seasons with 40 wins or whatever. <laughs> put out the stat not on us now. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> no, I did not see that. Whoever, whoever did that was just remarkable stuff. They were on their snark game. But you're right. I mean, they, they, they won a national title by winning 42 total games. This has to Brandon, be the team you've ever covered. Do what now? Weirdest team you've ever covered? Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, it's not even – yeah, no, 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 period. You know, Brandon Johnson, no, he – in, in a different world, he has like 18 saves. Yes. There's no doubt There's no doubt about that. He, he has a hell of a year in, an, in another world. He didn't I will give him credit, though. He's a guy who didn't throw much. And when Brandon at times would get really excited throughout the year, he would get the ball up in the zone. He could get hit a little bit. That's when he sort of freaked out. Like, he would get too amped up. And this is the biggest moment in that kind of crowd. And that dude became like this laser-focused thing during that ninth inning. That's the best he's thrown all year, ever. I mean, that was that was a phenomenal inning. He's like 95 to 98 with a hammer. And he's a guy – he's a fascinating character in all of this because he's a guy that I imagine you guys didn't talk to a ton, right? Like, did you guys get Brandon Johnson a ton throughout this year? He, we got him a couple times early when he was a really good talk and a pretty good quote around their early struggles, like after Tennessee and then like some times through that. And then, frankly, he didn't pitch. I mean, it's what Mike alluded to. I mean, they, they, they went a Super Regional without using their closer. He threw against Arizona or somebody just because he hadn't worked. I mean, he threw in this college world series just to get an inning in and a blowout. I mean, the way they were hitting the baseball, they just didn't even need their closer at times. So, no, we didn't talk to him because – Let's be honest, he didn't factor into games very much. 
wasn't he the guy that tried to correct the Tennessee? We took them easy. Small he was. Comments? So that, yeah. I, that's what I was trying to get at was the fact that like, he's a guy that you don't think about a ton other than when he comes in the, on the mound in the ninth inning. But he also seemed like a pretty important presence in that clubhouse because the guy that other than Van Cleve that spoke that night after SEMO, was it not he and Johnson? Do I have that correct? That is correct. Yes. And uh-huh. so like, he's, he's a guy that you didn't hear from, but like is clearly a very kind of important voice in that clubhouse. And like, I don't even really know much about his story. Like, I don't know how he got to Ole Miss, but, like, when he came in, you follow the recruiting aspect. Like, what what, what was the read on him? Like, I, I didn't think he would have the impact that he did. I just remember him coming in, and then I remember him throwing 94 a couple of times when I was actually at the games in Arlington mm-hmm. in 2021 and being like, who the hell is this kid? Like, what, what like, – I don't feel like his story has fully been told. And, like, that's kind of emblematic of how his year went. I mean, he's from Cottondale, Alabama. You know what I mean? Like, he's just from a, kind of a small I – mean, he, I think he mentioned today, like, they had one stoplight or whatever in his town. He kind of, you know, goes to Juco, comes out of nowhere. And you just thought he threw hard, but you didn't know, hey, is he going to have a lot of movement? Is he going to have a secondary? Is he just going to be this guy with a lot of talent? But you don't really know how it works out and what becomes of it. Yeah, I mean, there's it, – it, it, he, was, he was sort of a, a flyer in a way. You didn't know what the role was going to be. And he, like you said, he was in Arlington and threw hard. But all of a sudden, hey, the slaughter works. And he gets a little better at tunneling. And suddenly this and that and all these different things. And, wow. I mean, he's, he's a guy now that, look, he's a really smart kid. I think he's going to have some opportunities in the, in, in the workforce in a lot of different ways. He's a mechanical engineering major. But he's pitching well enough to just be good at baseball and to give it a chance. I think if you're him, you've got to go at least give it a shot and see what you can come up with. I guess that's a decent way to wrap it up. What do we – I mean, what would a podcast be with talking about next year? Does Mike have to host to keep his job? Uh, no, what does this look like next year? Like, uh, like, I mean, most of these guys have to go out on top, right? Like, we'll just go down the list. Delusia back or not? Uh, not back, even though if you said they stole one, I think he's the one they stole. I think you could probably have some NIL opportunities for him. I think he's probably looking at two, two fifty, three hundred thousand maybe tops in the draft. I think a you know a cheap sign in like the sixth to tenth round, something like that. Um, but no, I, I would say my my gut is no. But if I'm wrong on one, I think he's the one I would be wrong on. Graham and Bench. No and no. Graham, frankly, kind of gave gave it away during his speech tonight. He did, he he stopped himself, but he basically said it's great to go out like that. Well, I mean, what else does he have to accomplish? I get he has Nothing. another year. I get he doesn't protect, like project at you know whatever it is MLB wise. He's not going to be a high high draft pick. I don't think nothing to. I mean, I don't know. Could Justin get his dad to get the Reds to get him in the top ten rounds? I have no clue. Um, I did love that was one of my underrated favorite parts of the week where Justin Bench has just remained silent on this scandal the entire time and then quote tweets the real Johnny Bench and just says thanks, Dad. Very much enjoyed that content. Did you see? I sent this to you. You did, yeah, I did see that. He he, he said tonight the only bad thing that happened in Omaha was he didn't get hit by a pitch. So he was in on that bit too. Um, you know the good thing. Did you see the stat from Suss on Kevin Graham? No. He hit four. He hit over four fifty with runners in scoring position this season. Good God. season. <laughs> that is remarkable. Um. And I'm sure, like, the further you mine down, like, there's probably some ridiculous numbers with a couple of these guys on this team. I mean, now the entire bullpen with 20 innings without allowing a run. Um, I mean, look, you got Gonzalez back. McCants is back, right, even though he's technically a 21-year-old sophomore? I think he's actually going to go pro. 
Really? Yeah, I, he, he is draft eligible. I think McCants leaves. Interesting. So you don't think he needs another year? It's just going off. I, I'm not saying that. I just think he's had a hard year personally. I think in a lot of ways, just I, 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 my, my gut is he looks for a, a, a new setting. And if he can get drafted or signed, he will do that. And his brother's a kid that uh, never showed up at state and wasn't even, I mean, he would not like he was a top 15 draft pick either. I thought that was kind of interesting as well. Um, Alderman. Oh, back. Yeah, he's back anyway. Yeah. He's oh, yeah, sorry. I, th- I don't know why I thought he was a junior. Harris, Alderman, and Gonzalez are kind of your three core group next year. So, I mean, that's – Chatagnier. Back or no? Yeah, back. I think Chatagnier's back. Yeah. That's a – he's a junior but with a bunch of COVID stuff left, right? Like, he's he was a 2020 kid. He was a true freshman in 2020. Yes, he was actually draft eligible, though, as a sophomore last year. Really? So, he's an older kid? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's a decent quarterback. I mean, look, this is probably a podcast for a later day, but I was kind of curious what like next year looked like. You get Elliot back. Doherty, does he have another year? He can come back. Yeah, he's back. Doherty's back. Uh, Mallets is back. You get a lot of Mason Nichols next year, I think. Um, oh, Doherty was a true freshman last year. I yes, yeah, him. he was a true freshman. So he's back. If you know, if, look, if you could get Delusia, then great. But I think Nick Pogue's going to be very good for them. The kid they're picking up out of the portal from uh, um, Florida. Yeah, out of Florida. You know, he was a Tommy John kid that was 88 to 91 and still had an ERA around four in the SEC. Next year, I think that's 92 to 95, and he probably gets down into being a weekend starter and might be an MFR. I mean, yeah, they there's some pieces. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's definitely there. Last thing. I don't even know if it should go lasting memory or just what you do next. Like what I mean, you've you've been in Omaha for ten days. What are the next two weeks look like for you? <laughs> um, I'm gonna play golf tomorrow. Hey. Um you know, I'm gonna do that. He uh I I tell you what I'm doing. I probably not gonna do as much. I, this week is kind of my week to get a lot of the baseball season done. Yeah. Um, you know, I I won't be able to talk to Mike because he's he he flew to North Carolina tonight. He's going to the Netherlands soon. But I'm kind of wrapping up baseball, and then I'm going to work on some bigger projects the next few weeks. I'm watching a different podcast. Um, I've got some bigger just career personal stuff going on. I'm trying to get – we'll get announced if it works out, but some other things along that. Um, just sort of decompressing on the day-to-day level, but trying to do some things that you can't quite do when it's the minutia of – baseball season where you just don't have time to really dedicate that type of, of time to it. Um, so that's my goal. I mean, kind of use July because here's the deal. Football season starts in five weeks from a camp standpoint. Yeah. yeah, it does. Just a tremendous off season there in the profession. The bigger career stuff, is that Netflix picking up three outs? Yeah, absolutely. I'm fighting between no, Hulu, Amazon Prime, and Netflix. For it. You did it, but I feel like I played a part. You haze me enough to make me go ahead and get on with it where I just didn't lie to um, um, the my, my, my people or at least that one guy, I guess is what we should say, the, 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 the one cat. I don't think it's one guy. I got several DMs on Monday. Did you? Like three outs is back. And I was like, hell, yeah, okay. back in a big way. Um, Maybe we should just do three outs kind of like Riggs from Barstool does like the Daily Nine. We just pick three things and talk about them every day, no matter what they are. There you go. Three outs lives yeah. 365 days of the year. That's a shitty inning. Last, the lasting memory of this team. That's what I'll end on. Um, 
it's that I, here's the deal. It can easily be that they, from seven and 14, put themselves in position. Because you look at this, and Ben Van Cleve telling the team after they get beat 13 to three by SEMO, guys, just get us to 14 and 16, find a way to 14, and it's going to work, work, you know, work out. That's interesting. That's, that, that, that is a huge deal because they did that. But what's actually interesting is this team was not Cinderella. This team was not one that suddenly became talented. It was a team that got out of its own way and just started playing baseball again. They played every game away from home for so long, as we mentioned. They're a team that played so many games with their back against the wall where they just couldn't damn lose the game. And when they finally got on an even footing, finally got to zero and zero, finally got to where they could just move forward, they played their best baseball of the season because they were free and they'd already kind of been through hell a little bit together. And that's a huge deal. That's a huge deal to where they fought for each other. It wasn't about a bunch of individuals, as cliche as that sounds. It was about a team. And then once they could excel, they did kind of become the best team in the country. It is fascinating in that sense, the inverse of Mike Bianco's teams, because it's like, what are they going to do when they get pressed? And this team had to like get pressed to actually get the best version of themselves. So they're the national champions. Um, I heard there's a big scandal going on about you getting a picture of the trophy. Maybe that comes down the road. We'll have to check with our uh, friend Ben Garrett on that one. But uh, get some rest. I enjoyed it as always. And, uh, yeah, we'll start doing football two deeps next week. So rest up. Perfect. Appreciate it, bud. All right. That is our show. If you made it to the end, I appreciate you making us a uh, part of your day. Really appreciate you guys listening to the podcast. This is going to be our last show for the week. Um, I am headed out on Thursday to Newport Beach, California. Um, so that'll be cool spending the 4th of July weekend out there on a uh, bachelor trip. So I'll be back Tuesday. We'll probably pick back up midweek with, uh, some summer pod content, get some football rolling in a couple weeks, but I got a couple different ideas in the works that I want to do as we kind of hit this dead period. So probably the last pod for three, four days, but, um, we'll make up for it at some point on the back end. Y'all have a great, uh, and safe and happy 4th of July weekend. Don't do anything I wouldn't do or do. I can't control you people. You're all adults out there. And uh, we will catch you next week.